Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 122. The chase can be exhilarating with the proper companion. This week we're discussing series 8, episode 8 of Doctor Who, Mummy on the Orient Express, and season 2, episode 9 of Angel, The Trial. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, uh, Doctor Who, mm-hmm. Mummy on the Orient Express. Here we <laughs> yeah. have another, uh, not Agatha Christie themed, but sort of inspired by one of her works. Yeah. Uh, of course. Um, so, you know, they're getting a lot of good use out of her, I guess. Yes, definitely. Uh, um, yeah, this is sort of, we don't, you know, for all that we do Doctor Who genre episodes a lot, we don't often repeat them. So, you know, this is sort of the second Agatha Christie style, but I think a different yeah. sort of twist on the idea. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of her stories. It's not like her life as a person. Right. Um, although we still get sort of the same, you know, period. Yeah. Like, where, yeah. you know, the assumption like even though it's space, we still get kind of that twenties sort of flapper, mm-hmm. uh, jazz age kind of yeah. feel to it, um, which is interesting. And then, um, yeah, just the the idea of it sort of being you know an enclosed thing on a train, you know, it's and like high speed, you know, train one stop, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it's sort of self contained, yeah. Uh, you know, within the scenario or whatever. So, well, um, I think you had one or two, uh, uh, sorry, uh, like prefatory things you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, Um, well, first I wanted to point out, um, that this is by another new writer to the series whose name is Jamie Matheson. Um, and he's written some, uh, TV before, um, there was a TV show version of Dirk Gently, which is an old Douglas Adams mm. story that I guess I've never seen it, but there was a, a fairly recent TV adaptation that he wrote for and also Being Human, which was Toby Whithouse's show. Um, so he's certainly not new um, to writing TV, but he was also um, a former stand-up comedian um, as Toby Whithouse was, I think. So um you know, I think you get, I usually the, the episodes that are written by comedians are pretty good. Like, I feel like comics have a pretty good ear for the Doctor Who sort of dialogue. Um, and and probably just uh, some of that comes from, like, hearing, you know, the beat. Because that's, you know, comedy yep. has to be sort of well-timed. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, so it, it really gels well with the, like, flavor of the the banter of the show I find like you know I think the other one is like um I I can't remember the the writer's name but the guy who wrote Amy's Choice like he was a comedian Mm -hmm. too like these all these stand-up guys um I always really enjoy their episode stand-up guys they're they're stand-up guys but uh I always really enjoy their episodes um but it's not just me that enjoyed it. I do want to point out that um, this episode is a pretty popular one. Um, after it came out, um, uh, the Doctor Who magazine polled fans for their favorite um, 
of the season and this came out as the favorite uh episode and he was sort of named the the favorite writer for the season too because he not only writes the, this episode but the next one too um mm. so he has a couple mm. strong episodes to his credit um which they're not a two-part episode but interesting to have two ones by new writers sort of back to back um yeah. And so it kind of solidifies like, okay, he's not just a one hit wonder. He's actually um, pretty good at this. Um, and also uh, Dr. Who TV, which is another website polled uh, that did their recent let's poll every episode ever type thing. And uh, this came out number 10 overall. So definitely a, a big favorite. Um, so yeah. Um, I like this one a lot. I hopefully you do too. I think it's got some really it's fun and sort of is entertaining to watch, but I think has some good character um sort of emotional arc stuff to it as well. Um so I mean going back to kind of the setting and everything, the other thing I wanted to point out, which I think uh sets it slightly apart, even though it is that kind of Agatha Christie nineteen twenties vibe to it one thing i think is uh i mean another interesting thing that kind of makes it different is that like you know mummy on the orient express is the kind of obvious pun on murder on the, like if you're gonna replace the m word you know obviously it has to be mummy sure but i kind of like the way um obviously obviously like what else could it be um it's not gonna be like i don't know ghost on the vampire like that just doesn't scan right you know but um the one thing i think is kind of clever too is not only does that work well with the pun of the title but um there is this kind of association of like the 1920s with egyptian stuff and i was actually like googling it and there's actually a word you know for like egyptomania which like was this kind of Egyptian craze at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, You know, with like kind of all this resurgence of anthropology and everything, but you can kind of see it if you kind of look at Google images of like the art and architecture of the 20s is very sort of drawn from, you know, Egyptian style. That was sort of in vogue at the time. So that kind of Art Nouveau, very sort of, flat and graphic and geometric and a lot of sort of like ornate gold and all that is sort of that was a popular craze at the time and you even get it in things like you know all the mummy movies are set in the 20s like you know both the original you know but also like the remember that Brendan Fraser remake and everything like for some reason like the 1920s and mummies sort of go together um Sure. So I kind of like that gives it a slightly, you know, it, it feels different enough that I don't think this just feels like a rehash of, you know, the unicorn and the wasp, you know, that had much more of the kind of drawing room, um, you know, uh, manor home, you know, people dying one by one mystery feel to it. This feels more like one of those kind of like MGM adventures of like, you know, the mummy on the train and it's more like that monster movie type feel. Um, So, uh, anyway, I think it kind of goes together rather well. 
And I kind of like too of this, it reminds me a bit of like Voyage of the Damned where like it's in the future, but it's a future that is for some reason like nostalgic for this time period. So they're sort of trying to replicate a particular time that was like, this is like going on like your, your themed cruise that has like everybody's in costume and we're kind of, you know, or maybe all this, this is like a retro thing. Like the 1920s are sort of in vogue again and everybody's sort of trying to be of this one particular style. That was more what I was thinking of, but yeah, either of those sort of works. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the, the, the more sort of like retro. Yeah idea is like everything you know there's nothing new under any sun so you know it just sort of came around again you know and is in vogue that sort of style um so yeah so let's let's sort of break down the situation then because i want to i want as much as we can i sort of want to talk about you know sort of the the plot driven portion of the episode between you know about the mummy and the deaths and sort of the uh mystery aspect of it mm-hmm. um against and and separate that against the sort of personal stuff that the doctor and clara are going through um at least as much as possibly we can yeah uh understanding that there's going to be some bleed over because sort of the events of what happens on the train, you know, doesn't stay on the train. It sort Mm -hmm. of bleeds into uh, their, you know, external life as well. But um, let's start with sort of the situation. So we, I mean, which we've already sort of covered a little bit. We have, so we have a space train, you know, that's apparently called the Orient Express. Now, one, one of the first questions I had is, Okay, where is this train actually going though? Because like the reason that <laughs> it's you not call... going across the Orient. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. The the reason you call a train the Orient Express is because it's going to the Orient and it's express, so it's not stopping. Right. Um, we get the not stopping part. Like, right. Right. It w- the express isn't the problem. It's the Orient, and and what does that mean? I don't. Yeah, you know, it's not that big. Like it's the western side of the universe, maybe. Yeah, um, I I again or take eastern that side. I mean. I take that as more that nostalgic retro thing of like, you know, this same with, you know, Voyage of the Damned. We're calling this the HMS Titanic or Starship Titanic because it's the most famous vessel. Like there's we're invoking the name of something that's sort of glamorous Um, because like the doctor has the line about like there have been many trains called the Orient Express, but only one in space. So this idea of like, People just think that's a really, like, sexy title. So we're just going to keep, like, you know, that's our kind of, like, trying to invoke. Like, I feel like that's a self-aware invocation of, like, the period that they're trying to emulate. So, like, I don't think it really matters where it's going. It's just that, like, oh, you get to say you rode on the Orient Express. That's kind of the idea behind it. Sure. That's how I've Um, always read it anyway. Interestingly enough, there are actually not just a number of trains, but a number of transportation-related things uh, called the Orient Express throughout history. I don't know if you looked any of this up, but no, for example, there there was a an Orient Express uh, cruise ferry oh. <laughs> uh, in, in the Mediterranean um, that operated in like the eighties and early nineties. Okay. Um, 
there was there's the train uh obviously there was an automobile uh that was called the orient express it was like a german automobile in the one of the early ones uh in the end of the 19th century okay um and then there was also uh, and, and here we get the link to space. Uh, President Reagan apparently nicknamed a particular aerospace plane uh, the Orient Express as well. So okay. not unprecedented that things besides just even trains themselves right. uh, were sort of called that. And and I mean, again, like, you know, an aerospace plane, that's not really going to the Orient, right, <laughs> you right. know, it's part of the space program. So, you know, there again, you get sort of that. Uh, right. It's uh, not chosen because it describes any sort of what the train does. It's, it's chosen because everybody knows this title and it, right. it invokes all of these sort of tropes and ideas and everything. Um, so on this train, uh, so, so, okay. So first, uh, well, let's talk about the passengers because we've already talked about how they dress. Uh, but, you know, we find out uh, a bit later in the episode um, that the train is full of like doctors and professors and, mm -hmm. and basically smart people who have some sort of specialized training mm -hmm. or capacity. But also apparently a number of them are sick or, right. you know, mentally disturbed and or maybe disturbed isn't the right word, but have some sort of... Uh, you know, mental illness or something, um, or condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it's kind of a, not really a mishmash because like, again, like you feel like everyone there is sort of there for a purpose, but then that there's also, at least some of them are like, just have these problems. And maybe right. that's what I wasn't clear. So like, I understand that we sort of get the explanation that, um Gus or whoever mm -hmm. whomever uh sort of chose you know the people for their skills but I also mm -hmm. wonder how much of it was like they were choosing them for certain sicknesses or or that sort right. of thing like right. because you do get this sense like and, and I realize like it's sort of explained that like the sickest are first but you do get a sense too that like everyone or at least a lot of the people there have something going on right, either right. either physically or sort of you know mentally or stress related or whatever and that includes both the doctor and Clara mm -hmm. um that you know they're going through their situation as it were uh right and it's it's you know maybe not to the level of like uh you know PTSD like you know the one doctor has but you know it is certainly a sort of a psychic distress you might call it yeah um that they're having so i you know maybe that's maybe there's something to that maybe there isn't but i mm -hmm. it just it, you know just the fact that like like you didn't just pick like doctors who were all physically fit and capable <laughs> like right, right. you know there there are at least some there who had some you know issues or whatever so right well you feel like that suits their purposes in a couple ways like one i guess it, it provides like fodder for the mummy to keep like going after them like it's going to be drawn to these people but then also they have like greater motivation to research it because they might be next so this whole idea of like 
you have to figure out what it does because if you don't, it's coming for you and very quickly. So you're sort of motivated to like really put some effort into it. And, um, you know, uh, so I don't know that we ever do get confirmation that that's why these people were chosen, but I feel like that's yeah. sort of implied. Um, yeah, I don't, I, at least I didn't notice anything yeah. that sort of confirmed that. Um, but it was, it was just definitely something that I was sort of thinking about the second time I watched it, mm -hmm. uh, was like, yeah, like there seem it's, it seems more, okay. Like, yes, you picked out these, you know, people with specialized knowledge or training, but it seems more than just that. Like there was yeah. another criterion that isn't sort of explicitly confirmed in the same way, but still sort of seems to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, picked by whom? Well, uh, this it, it, Gus is the guy's name, right? Or the yeah. thing's name. Like, yeah. I don't know that we ever find out exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess Gus is the sort of AI program i don't think we get anything in here that explains it's sort of again implied that somebody must have set gus up but um right who that is uh we never really understand or we're never you know by the time the doctor goes to hacking gus and trying to figure that out that's when it it blows up the train to prevent him from Right. figuring that out so gus is sort of the only that's as far as we get into like the whole um behind the scenes of it all although i do want to point out there's that one bit where the doctor sort of says you know it's tried to lure me here before with you know invitations and phone calls to the tardis and there is that one bit in um the big bang the season five finale where it's just when amy and mary Amy and Rory have gotten married and they're, you know, the doctor's saying goodbye and he gets a phone call in the TARDIS about, you know, an Egyptian goddess loose on the Orient Express in space. And that's when they decide to like, you know, Amy says goodbye and they go off with the doctor instead of staying at home. So again, I don't think it, it's sort of implied that maybe they didn't come to the Orient Express, but that this is like, somebody's been trying to lure him there for a while and they've mm. they've unsuccessfully been you know calling him with different enticing requests um yeah that's interesting i i had forgotten that part um and of course they don't go well we don't see them go there mm -mm. uh anyway like the next time we see them there you know is the christmas yeah uh episode so um Maybe they were on their way and they, you know, that's when they got on the. Right. Uh, Went to their, you, for a quick honeymoon before they did that or something. Right. Well, right. And uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, we could go down that road a ways. But anyway, um, yeah, no, you, you do get that idea of, you know, again, that, that there's, uh, you know, something or someone bringing them together. And so, you know, the question is, is it sort of like, okay, so it was this Gus personality, mm -hmm. um, or yeah, again, is there someone like, is it like, you know, how, how far back do you go to, you know, in the first mover chain? Like, is there someone, is it the person who set up Gus or, or, you know, was Gus just sort of like 
like someone set it up and then it kind of went rogue. And right, like, right, right. Like, you know, so there's a couple possibilities there. I mean, I guess the sort of way that I interpret it at this point is that there, there probably is someone else sort of pulling those strings and mm -hmm. that like, you know, whether it was that they set up Gus to, you know, actively like do its own marketing. Right. Uh, or, you know, it was more like there's someone else sort of using this known AI, you know, that has these murderous tendencies. And so like, it's trying to lure mm -hmm. other people there. Um, I don't, I don't know that I have a, a complete answer, but I would, I would <clears throat> sort of lean towards the, yeah. there's another, you know, nefarious person out there. Right, um, right. Note two that we don't get a heaven scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Uh, which we've gotten elsewhere. So I, we've seen it enough times now that I was half expecting to see like, you know, like maybe the doctor with PTSD show right. up in like, a, in heaven, yeah. you know, uh, like a convalescence home or something for, you know, yeah retire you know for veterans or something like that like that they're that they're but we didn't get that so i guess i was just second guessing <laughs> um you know what what we're seeing there but um yeah you kind of would expect it there's certain episodes where they don't they don't yeah. necessarily do it every single week but I'm, but certainly that wouldn't have been out of place to have and so like in in thinking back i was like okay so what other episodes where do we not see that and i couldn't I couldn't remember exactly which ones because, like, you know, I'm remembering, like, the half man, half robot thing. And mm -hmm. I'm remembering, like, um, oh, geez, now I can't. Oh, like the security guard, right, you know, right. uh, or the cop yeah. or whatever. It is. Yeah. So just, like, like I, I haven't gone back through to, like, actually look at which episodes we do and don't see to see if there's anything yeah. more about that. But right. I, th I I did think it was kind of curious that we didn't get that this time because, and the reason I say that to tie this back into what we were just talking about is because if there were sort of another external personality pulling strings, I would expect it to tie into, I would expect yeah, yeah. it to tie into all of that. So, right. 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 Cause we're setting up, uh, you know, Missy and that kind of heaven as like, potentially like the, the the season long sort of you know right big bad potentially or or just like the ongoing arc and so yeah the, if you whatever see it, whatever that is maybe you know there could be um some connection like you know with this kind of mysterious person behind the curtain pulling the strings um yeah so um, yeah again i don't i don't have a specific you know theory or anything there i just i was sort of expecting it and it didn't happen which is the opposite of other times when you sort of have like these stories and then it's like at the end it's like oh wait, there's sort, of a, yeah. there's sort of an epilogue here like right let's, right let's watch this epilogue yeah um and i don't know yeah like like this is the first time where i've been expecting it and it didn't it didn't Maybe happen it's just so. far enough into the season that you finally gotten sort of used to it to the point where you're expecting it. It's no longer like a surprise when it turns up. Well, and, and so, right. The question becomes is like, that doesn't necessarily mean people didn't go there. Like it. Sure. 
could just it could just be that we haven't seen it we don't yeah. see that so there might yeah. even you know whether we do or don't see characters from the orient express uh later in this sort of heaven thing i i mean so and i'm making i like i realize i'm making a something all right we weren't gonna talk about the heaven which is especially <laughs> weird because we don't see it in this episode. but i'm it's, like it's conspicuously like, absent I'm realizing now that I that I'm already starting to make certain assumptions about it, um, which is that like one, it's not just apparently in my mind, it's not just the people that we actually see going there, but mm. that there's potentially other people going there. Ah, uh, which I like. I'm I'm realizing this as I'm like talking about it. So like, yeah, I haven't actually put this into like real thoughts yet. Right, but um. You know, and and the other aspect of it is that like, uh, we will see those people again at some point because like right. they're still, they still have some kind of existence, whatever that is, uh, in this heaven sort mm -hmm. of place. So maybe both of those assumptions are completely wrong and off base. Yeah. But I'm realizing that those are with what I know about it now those are the assumptions that I'm making. So right. I at least wanted to acknowledge that as I was just sort of realizing. Well, I think that's a really, we might as well finish talking about it at this point. Um, I think that's a really interesting question, you know, to kind of, and I think that's a good question to say, is it, is it just the ones that we've seen? Is it, you know, more people? Is it everybody, you know, is this a sort of, you know, and, and, you know, we don't know yet, obviously. And I think, I think, was it in the, whenever the last time we saw it was when we saw um, Seb there as well as Missy. And like, yeah. so, I mean, Missy called it heaven, I think. Like she says, like, welcome to heaven. Um, although, but then it's, it's interesting when we meet Seb, he kind of says like, well, you know, you can also call it the afterlife or I prefer the nether or sphere. Paradise yeah, or, or paradise. Yeah. So he says the nether sphere. So yeah, yeah. those names like to me heaven implies the kind of heaven hell dichotomy of like you have to sort of be you know heaven isn't necessarily where everybody goes like whatever your qualifying criteria is there's a you know he heaven and paradise have a more exclusive sort of overtone than like the nether sphere you know or just, you know, the afterlife, which is sort of the blanket term for whatever comes after death. So I think it's sort of interesting to kind of think about like, okay, is it all the characters who die are going to these places? It, yes, why or why not? You know, what are the criteria, you know? Um, and and it's, I mean, it takes different formats yeah. for different people. So is right. that, you know, based on their belief system or, right. you know, right. their cultural understanding or what you know like a number of things that could be yeah. uh you know sort of affecting that so mm -hmm. um yeah i don't i mean and i don't know any of that <laughs> it's just uh yeah you know again, no sort it, of... you're right it is sort of conspicuously absent in this episode um yeah i mean so to kind of finish with gus uh I think he's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's kind of all I have to say about Gus. Like, I got he. I think he's a sort of entertaining villain. His sort of 
chipper, polite, you know, like, sure, you know, his thing of, of, uh, grief counseling is available on request on the bright side. I'm sure you all collected a lot of data, you know, like this sort of, you right. know, aren't you having a wonderful time kind of persona well, and, fits with that sort of British, you know, that, you that know, 20th century sort of look on the bright side British attitude, you know. I didn't really think of this until just now, but um, kind of the, uh, he, he makes a good, not foil, uh, comparison, I guess, to the sort of Jeeves character in you're the right, trials. You're right, you're right, you're uh, right, yeah. In the, in the next, uh, in the Angel episode that we're yes. going to look at in a bit. So like, yeah, they're sort there of cut from the same cloth. Yeah, where he's like, oh, I'm, you know, uh, the the Jeeves character sort of like, I, I'm just here to see how things work out. I don't really have, you know, a, a hand, you know, a card, a hand in this game or whatever, uh, you know, one way or the other. You know, it doesn't really matter to me. And and right. like, I don't and, and this kind of like, I really, I really want you to succeed. You know, even as I'm setting up scenarios in which you will probably die, there's a sense in which. He's yeah. kind of rooting for you, you know, and like happy when like, oh, you, you know, you collected a lot of data. Look how wonderful you're doing. Yeah. You know, that kind of really uh, upbeat sort of personality. I don't I don't know that Gus is quite as like, you know, true neutral as Jeeves seems to be. Right. But No, Gus uh, has like sinister layers underneath the like really. Right polite exterior whereas like you're right the Jeeves character is more like uh he really has no um personal stake in in any of this one way or the other he doesn't he is neither trying to kill you nor is he really like rooting for you either he's just sort of there to administer the um right the 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 trial I guess but they both have that kind of, you know, uh, butlerish, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'm here to serve, you know, whatever you need kind of attitude about them. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, um, we're like half, halfway through our discussion for Doctor Who. We haven't even gotten to like the other characters, the characters although yeah. I don't know. I don't know how many we need to sort of talk about in depth. Sure. Um, but you get like, again, there's, and I, I didn't really write down a lot of their names except Maisie, mm -hmm. um, who's the, you know, daughter slash granddaughter of the first woman who dies. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I meant to do was the second time through, I was, I was trying to keep a body count list, oh. but I ended up not, I think there are five people who are actually killed by the mummy, but then like, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, yeah. But then, like, Gus, like, empties the... <laughs> he, like, vents a whole bunch uh, of people, yeah. Yeah, they, so, like, I don't, like, I you don't really know. I think you see, like, two corpses floating out in the space, but there may have been more, so it's kind of hard to, to say. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the, um, the idea there is that the... Uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, but I don't, I don't know how many others, like we need to, like, there's, you sure. know, again, the doctor with the PTSD and mm -hmm. there's like, um, there's another guy like, who's like, 
what like the Egyptologist or, or mythology, you mm-hmm. know, historian kind of guy. Um, and that right. kind of thing, um, sort of archetypish mm-hmm. kind of folks. Um, you know, I mean, again, I think the idea of it's more the combined skills of like, these are all sort of like professional, like scientists and historians mm-hmm. and like, you know, they're used to looking at things sort of uh, critically and sort of remote, you know, from like non-emotionally. Yeah. And you have the doctor who does that too. But like the difference being with all of the people, uh, their emotions very quickly when they're the ones who become the subject, mm. uh, you know, their emotions very quickly as like understandably this isn't a fault you know right, for that right. uh but understandably you know they're more concerned with the fact that they're not going to survive and and you get the doctor like trying to encourage them to <laughs> right. you know uh provide more data about what they see and ex- are experiencing right. and they're like well no i want to live i don't want to tell you you know yeah. what's going on um right he wants them to to keep clinically detached you know as right. they're sort of uh yeah, and you get the professor who, like, you know, starts out trying to give some sort of objective data and then just says, like, screw it and starts, like, promising, you know, doing his sort of bargaining thing, you know, because, yeah, it's very different when it's you who's sort of the next on the chopping block. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot to say uh, about their characters necessarily um yeah but i so i just wanted to uh yeah to uh, sort of mention you know again that like we had these different these different people but that um i mean we already kind of talked about like again that it's sort of they were sort of like chosen to be there right, um right um, i did want to talk oh sorry go ahead well, yeah. I just, the one kind of other, the one minor character I do want to mention maybe before we go into the more um, main stuff is Perkins, who's the engineer. Um, and, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that, like, for all that there are these experts and scientists on board, it's really Perkins who the doctor sort of, you know, relies on the most and who actually ends up being the most sort of, like, helpful and knowledgeable and everything. So it's sort of like you get... The doctor, as usual, sort of um, allying himself with the kind of the unexpected, more sort of underdog, like it's not the professor or the soldier. It's this sort of like blue collar engineer, you know, who just happens mm. to be kind of smart enough to figure things out, you know. Yeah. Um, but also to sort of stay out of the way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um yeah, he sort of, you know, is a pretty good companion in this. Like, he asks the right questions, but kind of follows the doctor's lead. And I like the little, it starts out where he's kind of almost being set up as, like, is he maybe behind it all? But then he kind of, like, jokes about that. Like, he knows this, I'm going to be, like, you know, the obvious, you know, culprit. So, like, you know, when the doctor's like, hmm... Maybe it's too quick. And uh, and he's like, yes, I'm obviously the mummy. Like, you know, he's like, I already know that you're going to, 
you know, suspect me of being behind this all. So you kind of get this, like, he and the doctor, like, messing with each other a little bit. Um, But, you know, it's sort of funny to me that there are all these, like, scientists standing around in the background, like, quietly. And it's, like, Perkins the engineer, who's, you know, that's the doctor's guy. who You know, he's the one who really sort of steps up and helps him sort of figure things out. Well, and and there's also, there's sort of, like, the applied aspect to it as well, right? right? right. Like you have sort of like right. He actually the is theorist, more knowledgeable, yeah, yeah. But but he's the one, right? He's the one keeping the train running, mm-hmm. so to speak, and and you know having that, uh, yeah, that sort of practical ap- application of, you know, what the others are just sort of like ruminating on right. and studying, right? Um. So yeah, the. Uh, and, and, you know, and he's likable for that. Like, you know, again, he's smart. He has specialized knowledge, just like the others do. He's, and, and training and whatever. Um, but he's also sort of got the, like, he's got the intelligence enough to figure things out and sort of jump in there when he needs to. But, um, you know, the other aspect is that, like, you get the sense that he's been around a while. Mm -hmm. So, like... I mean, we don't know, but him and sort of the conductor and others, uh, I guess we don't really know if they, how long they've been on the train, but you get the sense that like, they've seen it before. And so, so on the other hand, I don't know, because we do get like the idea of like, that everybody was killed on the train in previous ships. So it's not real clear, I guess, exactly. Like maybe they are new mm-hmm. crew for this time around. Um, I I don't know. Now that I'm saying, like now that I'm thinking about it, like I don't. I guess I'm not clear on whether, um, like the engineer and and the captain and you know all the different people are brand new to this because the captain seems to figure out like, okay, people are dying weirdly from the beginning and mm-hmm. like he want, he's trying to keep it from everyone. But then when the doctor asked him like, well, how many deaths is it going to be till whatever? He's like three. And it's like, <laughs> right. okay, so there just been three. So does that mean like you're new or like, well, I think the previous deaths were on other vessels, weren't they? I feel like in, when Clara's reading off, like, you know, all these other things with no survivors. I don't know that that was necessarily on the Orient oh, Express. Okay. I think it's like there. Maybe been I a, misunderstood. I that, think it's yeah. like there have been a string of mysterious incidents like this, but like on other starships, not on. So this. So AI. it's new to this. Yeah, like it's new to the Orient Express, I guess. So like, even if Perkins has been around a while, I think this situation is. Okay, I, I think that's I think, what they mean. I think I I misunderstood that then. I I thought they were talking about the Orient Express had experienced gotcha. this before, yeah. and so I was confused about how long. Right, right. But that makes more sense then. So I then, think that's I think that's what they mean. Yeah. Then then sort of the crew could have been around a while. Right, and right. Whatever, and right. This so is when he says three time. deaths, like this is the first three that there have been on this train that he's sort of been involved in um okay yeah gotcha. uh so okay interesting then 
So, uh, I mean, you know, in the end, they figure things out. So that's good. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what more to say though about sort of the situation. The mummy turns out to be like some soldier that's sort of being right. uh, wrongfully kept, you know, animated. I'm not sure alive is quite the right word. Right. Uh, you right. Know, so for, you get the continuation of the soldier theme, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Throughout and, the season. And you know. Uh, we were talking about afterlife, uh, you know, before, like, I guess in a way, like, cause that's why, uh, you know, ancient Egyptians mummified people is to preserve them for the afterlife and, you know, kind of give them. So in a way, like this is, uh, the mummies afterlife, you know, is yeah. this, uh, and I mean, so, okay. So if, if we want to be sort of empathic about it mm -hmm. um like you could look at it too like he he's doing this thing but it's you know he's being kept alive sort of uh beyond his will which is interesting because we get similar theme from like darla and yeah uh stuff in angel but like but like yeah like that he's been like he continues to be sort of revived by this device mm -hmm. and you know he, you know, you get at the end when the doctor sort of finally frees him, almost sort of a thankful mm -hmm. vibe that like is like, okay, now I can go to rest and you know turns to dust yeah. and whatever. Um, yeah, like so not, it's not, not even, all afterlives are necessarily paradise, right? Like there might be right, some right. which are burdensome or kind of you know unpleasant in their way. Well, and that like I mean, there's. You know, it's it's easy to sort of think, well, the monster is like in cahoots with Gus or whatever, or whatever. But it's it's really more of like there's a controlling thing going on here, like right. that. There's, um, on the other hand, like that might not even be the right interpretation because like Gus is just sort of saying like, hey, there's this thing happening, and you need to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So. Even though I do get the sense of a sort of malevolence in Gus, mm -hmm. like you said, at the same time, I can I can almost see like maybe it's not like like maybe he's more of like reveling in the fact that like there's this fun weird murder going on, <laughs> um, but like Gus isn't necessarily causing it. It's like maybe mm -hmm. it's just like, hey, this is interesting and I'm gonna bring people here to study this and figure it out and you know, see if they can see what's going on. Right. I, I'm not sure I buy that right. explanation, but I could almost see that as like it's it's more like Gus as an entity is using the situation of the mummies right. uh sort of uh malfunctioning tech to I don't know, get its jollies, so to speak, right, you know, right. um, I, I don't know. Again, like this is all just sort of. Yeah. I mean, you could even, thinking. if you really um, want to push it, you could even read it in a kind of, uh, you know, benevolent way of this. There's this spirit, which is trapped by technology and we need people to confront it in order to release it. So even if they get killed along the way, eventually one of them will figure it out and beat it, you know, and let it go. So like, right. I mean, we don't get that. Like 
Gus never says, oh, I'm doing this for the mummy's sake or anything. But like, I, you, it, you could make that argument of like, this is actually right. what the mummy needs in order to be released. And so there's, you know, that's the kind of positive well, outcome or even, of it. Even, even if it's not quite that aspect of like, it's what the mummy needs. It's like, if we don't do this, people are going to continue to die, right. you know? Uh, so there, yeah. So from one end or the other, you still yeah. get sort of that more compassionate um, aspect potentially. But again, like, you know, from a personality perspective, you don't quite get that from Gus. No, but, no. but you could, you could sort of see that that's like, like maybe it's not even intent. Like certainly in the mummy's part, it doesn't seem to be like intentional. It's this, technology that's sort of keeping it alive yeah um and you could come up with an explanation you know that is less nefarious for gus Mm -hmm. in those situations too um but again like i don't i don't know that i buy that 100 percent because like there's sort of the yeah gus has a little too much fun (laughs) it sort of feels different but anyway yeah um i did want to at least sort of mention that yeah so um all right, we need to talk about the doctor. And yeah, Clara. I was gonna say like last fifteen minutes here, we should talk <laughs> yeah. about the doctor and Clara because, um, from a you know the two of them working together from mm-hmm. the, uh, you know having the proper companion sort of perspective, um, right from the beginning we get that there's something wrong. So I I did want to say it was a little it was a little I don't know if jarring is quite the right word, but a little. Um, huh, uh, at the beginning of the episode to say, you know, to see sort of Clara and the Doctor together, especially after, like, yeah, at the end of the last episode, we see, like, Clara sort of declaring that she's never gonna, you know, travel with the Doctor again, and, yeah. you know, sort of, like, we do get the idea of Danny and, you know, sort of saying to her, well, I don't think you're actually serious because you're still angry mm-hmm. about it, but... I wasn't quite expecting to see, like, the beginning of the next episode, you know, the TARDIS door open and the Doctor and Clara sort of stepping out in costume together. Right, You know right. what I mean? So, like... Yeah, um, I I totally felt the same way. It, it, I think it is jarring at first. You know, after that ending, I, I was expecting there to be, like, a, a, a split of, like, maybe mm-hmm. maybe you do a kind of, like um thing like with Tennant and Tate where like he's in midnight and she's in turn left and they're not really in each other's episodes I was expecting that like where he's off on an adventure and then the next week we'll catch up with what's Clara doing before we sort of bring them together again um so I think it does there's a slight bit of it throws you off I think it recovers well enough once I saw that okay we're addressing it it's not like we're just you know, right. pretending it never happened. Like it continues to be an issue and you find out that this is something Claire has been struggling with and thinking about and hemming and hawing over. And the whole episode sort of culminates in, is she able to actually make this decision or not? In retrospect, I, I like it a lot more, but like the first time was definitely, there was a moment of, oh no, they're not going to really, follow up on like the emotion of the last episode yeah um but i think you can kind of see like maybe it wouldn't be all that interesting to have clara just sort of sit around and mope for a week you want to find a like a way for 
there to still be like an adventure plot and and have some sort of episode. Um, although not I to don't, say I that, don't know that I would have thought of Clara as being the one to mope. Well, no, that's true. <laughs> well, no, just well, maybe because, she's like, not, you know, and maybe that's the point is, you know, no, no, no. I, I mean, like the doctor would be the one to mope. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> the, 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 you know, I, so, okay. It, in my sort of alternate universe, the way I sort of thought it could go. And, and I agree with you on like the, you know, maybe we see the doctor in one episode and then Clara like in another and kind of them doing different things. But I would see more like, I would think of more of like this doctor in particular, more so than like Matt Smith doctor, definitely. Right. And probably more so than Tennant, like him going somewhere else uh, and being like, this is no fun. <laughs> like, right. like right. I don't have a companion with me and this sucks. And um, whereas Matt Smith, like, sorry, whereas 11, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I could see more being like just going somewhere and picking up more companions along the way. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah. I so here so here's like future knowing that Clara's still in sort of the current season, although at some point I guess she will leave because we already heard the sort of announcement yes. about uh Jenna Coleman leaving the mm -hmm. show. Yeah. Uh but we don't know at what point that is in the series or whatever. Uh knowing that she at least makes it into, you know, season nine, mm -hmm. uh at this point, I I can still see like, like this doctor seems to be much more codependent okay. on the companion than previous doctors. And that, that's not to say that there's like not always sort of a dependency there, but mm -hmm. like, like with Matt Smith, mm -hmm. I definitely got, again, sorry, 11, <laughs> I definitely got more of a sense of like, yes, you know, he loved Amy, he loved Rory, whatever, but that he could kind of go off and do whatever. And, right. you know, he also had river and like, he was doing things with other people, you know, sort of along the way. Right. In this one, I don't get the sense that like when the doctor drops Clara off and then goes and does his own thing, I don't get the sense that he's going off with like other people. Right. Like I, I don't, there isn't like a Paternoster gang that like, right. Right. He's going to like eleven maybe did or mm -hmm. you know like those like I kind of get the sense that twelve is more of the kind of more introverted I guess and that sure. like that like he he has his companion who he's comfortable with and right. when she's not with him yeah he kind of just deals with things on his own um, and that's not to say maybe he's not doing adventures and things mm -hmm. but I don't get the sense that he's like the one who's sort of like having more of a magnet personality. He's not like going and having picnics with Queen Elizabeth, right, you know, right. like tended or, you know, just other sorts of things like that. Right. Um, right. I, yeah, there's, there's actually something in a later episode, which I feel like we should come back to that. I think that's a really, well, I'll say there's, this, there's at least one other scene later on that, that reinforces that idea. So that's a good, I think that's a good idea for him is, he he is much less comfortable with you know the sort of a wider range of people than some of the previous ones that you're right like he has sort of narrowed in on clara um you know as as somebody that he has a real rapport with um so yeah so yeah and i mean 
so that's sort of what I mean by like more codependent, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, we do get obviously, you know, sort of like uh, instances before where, you know, you have people saying to the doctor, you need to be with someone. And that's like, sure. I agree with that in general. But I feel like in this case, it's more like it's Clara or nobody <laughs> for this right. doctor. Well, and think and, about it, like, you know, with so here's like an interesting I I have to think about how true this is, you know, maybe I'm generalizing, but like 11, if you think about like when um, he's sending, like he's waving to them out of history and like, you see him, like he's like dancing in the old movies and he's, yeah, you know, yeah. doing things that like you get the idea that he is off on all these like crazy adventures with all these different people and having like a great time. Whereas with 12, when you see him by himself, what is he doing? It's like, listen, when he's like by yeah. himself, talking writing to himself, writing on his yeah. chalkboard, like having like philosophical debates, driving himself crazy, you know, without anybody else there. Um, and scaring, then scaring bums in the alleyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so when he does meet people, they're like, um, I'm terrified. Can you like go away? Like, I don't like yeah. your face at all. Um, or like, you know, in, or he's bugging Clara. Like it's, it's, he's like, I think that's kind of the idea of the beginning of the caretaker. Like she's trying to have a relationship and trying to work and he mm. keeps interrupting her saying, you have to come, you have to come, you have to do this stuff. So like, you know, whenever he's sort of the introvert in that way that he's, when he's by himself, He's doing that. And then when he wants to be with someone, he goes and gets her to come with him. He's not just going to go off and like meet any old, you know, new person and have a kind of, you know, adventure. So I never really thought of the split like that, but I think that that works really well. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, we'll we'll see whether that sort of idea pans out but i think um i think thinking of it like that with this episode in particular then becomes uh a little more interesting too because you get the so yeah so like disregarding sort of the jarring opening um actually not completely disregarding it because i do think even before you get like you know clara say you know calling it to our last hurrah or whatever like mm -hmm. um you do get this sense of like, you know, he's like, oh, you're, you're, you're smiling, but it's a sad smile. It's like two emotions, like, you know, something's wrong with you, <laughs> like you're, you're malfunctioning, you're malfunctioning or something. Um, you know, two emotions at once is a bit, yeah, that's the, a bit the too doctor, many. Yeah. The doctor isn't complex enough to understand bittersweet, you know, right, like, right, um, right. that idea. So like, you know, you do get some of those references and even like, like the sense that he's, trying to avoid something before we get mm. what it is that he's trying to avoid, um, you know, where he's like, uh, you know, just talking about like the different planets and trying to talk about, you know, these different things. And like, of course we've all sort of been in that situation with either where we, or, you know, someone we're with might be sort of dancing around the subject and you know, you're doing it and they know you're doing it. And yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're just trying to get to that point where you can sort of breach a topic without having to actually breach it because that's hard. And so, um, you know, Clara does. And, you know, that's when we find out that this is like, 
you, you know, this is like the the amicable uh, breakup mm-hmm. dinner slash whatever. Um, you know, where you go and and you're like, okay, we're done after this, but let's just sort of reflect on our time together and right. try you know, to go out on uh, a positive, yeah, friendly note. Yeah, try to be friends. Well, um, and your point about his sort of more narrow codependency on Clara, I think is interesting because, you know, it, it's not that he is dancing around the subject because he doesn't care. It's that, you know, in a way he might care more because, you know, it would be quite difficult for him to go off and find somebody else. So you kind of get this idea of like, it's too big to talk about. So can I just talk about the planets, please? Because this is something I can understand. Like, you know, I kind of like that moment of she's trying to tell him how he feels and he's like, please just let me talk about the planets. Like (laughs) that's about the level that we're at right now. In in, in sort of the classic stages of grief, they're in different stages. He's still in denial and she's moved on to acceptance. acceptance, Uh, And so, yeah, there's a, there's sort of a different, like, you know, last we saw her, maybe that's the drawing that last we saw her, she was in anger Mm -hmm. and we don't see the steps for her to get to acceptance. And so like, there's that, disconnect for us there but um that does seem to be sort of the way that they're doing it. and i yeah i don't i think you're right i don't think at all that like yeah. the doctor doesn't care i think it's that he cares quite a bit and so you know because he hasn't come to accept it yet he just doesn't even want to talk about it and right you know can i talk about the planets yeah, <laughs> now? Yeah. Like, yes go ahead <laughs> um yeah that part cracks me up so then but then i think it's interesting it kind of flips in a way because it's a couple, it's not long after that um, they're talking, they're in the hallway before they're going to bed. And, and suddenly we kind of realize in a way it's almost reversed because, you know, there's a level of denial with Clara of assuming that not traveling with the doctor means you can maintain a relationship with him. And Mm -hmm. he obviously knows that that's not true, even though he might not want to admit it. Um, and she does, so you get that thing of like, you know, well, it's not like I'm gonna never see you again. And he's like, very ominous, isn't it? (laughs) You know, and then she's like, well, you're going to come around for dinner. Do you come around for dinner? And he's like, I don't know. Do you want me to come around? And why wouldn't I? And she's like, well, it might be boring. He says, is it? She's like, no, like really, really quickly. Like it probably is a little boring, but like, you can't tell the doctor that or he won't come. Well, and going Um, back. Going back to 10, you know, I don't do right. family dinners. I don't do like, dinners, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, um, so, um, you know, again, so now there's a kind of, even though I think maybe Clara's made up her mind more than the doctor has, I think he has a more realistic understanding of what her decision actually means, you know, whereas she still has this notion of, okay, I'm not going to travel with you, but you're going to come over once a week for Sunday dinner and we're going to like, you know, whereas that clearly is not going to happen. At least, you know, we've never, not that it, you know, obviously, you know, Eleven would, you know, cried when Amy set a plate for him for dinner. But like, you get this sense that Amy and Rory were still his companions. Like, you know, he hadn't moved on from them, you know, whereas once the doctor moves on, he kind of moves on all the way, you know, and, and 
you can't really have it both ways, it seems. So And and that's not just true of when the doctor moves on, but also with what has happened with his last number of companions. Yeah. I mean, other than Martha, he can't go right, see sure. any of his other companions. Uh, Rose is gone. Uh, Amy and Rory are gone. Donna, if he tries to talk to her, will die. Right, right. Something bad will happen to her. Uh, you know, potentially he could go see Martha, but she made it very clear that she no longer yeah. was interested in doing those. Like, you know, she's gone, married, yeah. doing her thing now. So, I mean, from his perspective, too, it's not even just like he moves on, but either something has happened to those other companions or or they've made that decision that mm -hmm. I don't want to, not that I don't love you and whatever, but that I just can't have right. you in my life anymore. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I think for him, it does make more sense because he's seen this before mm -hmm. and whatever, for whatever reason. And, you know, okay. And so, so if we continue sort of the breakup analogy too, there is that thing of like, yeah, like it's nice to say, oh, you know, we can still be friends, mm -hmm. but how often, okay, it does happen, but sure. how often does that happen? And how often is that friendship really a true, meaningful, right. Right. Uh, non-superficial friendship? Again, it can happen. It does happen, but it's not the norm, right. you know, right. especially when people go through such emotional sort of right. Right. breakups. So, um, you know, I do think that there's... Right, which is kind of the way Clara had been talking. Like, she seems, she's obviously softened a bit but like right. you know that was sort of her language was get out I don't want you to come back ever you know it was a, a very definitive you know a bad breakup not like you right. know right. An, an amicable breakup um so you know okay we get the we get sort of the illusions and and I do yeah I, I think you're right that there there is definitely a sort of inversion going on there with her kind of like realizing like, oh, wait a minute. I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah. Like I, I don't, I don't want to see you anymore, except I do kind of want to see you. Yeah. It's just, you know, in a different capacity or whatever. Right. And it's like, well, that, that really maybe isn't what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is sort of a realization there for her. And I think that that ultimately, um, sort of that hanging on is like well what are you hanging on to is it that you won't like is it the doctor just sort of being around that's fun well no of course not that's not even really why you want him to come by it's the adventure part mm -hmm. and it's you know the exhilaration of right. being um and and one of the reasons why I like so we don't always talk about why we choose the titles but one of the reasons why this stood out to me and that's actually the quote is actually from angel right um, right but the one of the reasons why I like it here is because, uh, you know, the idea of being, uh, you know, exhilarating with the proper companion is that it. I think it works for both the doctor and for Clara. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we've talked before about how um, the doctor is as much of a companion to the companion sure. <laughs> as the other way around. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, with Clara, like. Okay, yeah, she has Danny Pink and, you know, 
there's still this idea that he's he can't quite give her mm. that aspect of things and you know and and like that was sort of explicit in the last episode of like you know what is it that he gives you that I can't kind of you know not in those exact words but mm-hmm. um you know that's kind of the thing is the exhilaration the adventure right. you know that's why she goes with the doctor and that's not really what Danny does mm-hmm. um he doesn't do weird you know right. um and she wants the weird <laughs> so the doctor does weird really good and that you know <laughs> the idea of you know her not having that anymore i think is a big part of sort of what she realizes at the end even so well okay we'll get to that in a minute but i i guess just want to um yeah just wanted to point out that that's like like i feel like there's that per- like the the inversion there of the oh well i'll still see you though right it's sort mm-hmm. of the beginning of her steps to realize that like actually it's it is all or nothing and i don't want the nothing <laughs> i want right. it all you know so um i think that's where we, where she gets to by the end um and the realization of that is sort of gradual you know as she's uh yeah. going through the experience but then also saying you know, talking to Danny and I don't, I don't know that she actually lies to him. Does I she? think she does. I think she does. I think she, I think she lies to both of them. Yeah. Um, well, the reason I was saying that is because I think it's, I think it's that she, I think she lies to the doctor when she says like Danny's okay with it. Right. Right. I, I think that's clearly a lie. Cause at that point she sort of had the realization I think that. Well, Danny asks her, "Is it done?" And she says, "Yes, mission accomplished." That's true. That's true. That is. <laughs> so, to me, that's pretty about as. That's like the last yeah. bit of lying I, of by omission you can go. I, you know, what? that's not even lying by omission. That's lying. I think if he's I, if he if he's asking, "Is it done?" Meaning, did you break it off? Other right. than she, saying the exact words, I don't know how much and, clearer and she, knows, she, she can would be. know. She would know what he means. What by he that. means so, by that? Okay. I mean, maybe Fair you could enough. get out on it on the tediest, tiniest of like semantic techno- technicalities, but like that's a pretty thin thread. Fair enough. I think. Fair enough. Fair enough. You've convinced me. But <laughs> I, I, I guess I was giving her more credit as sort of like. As yeah. she was talking, like she was sort of realizing, actually, I want the other thing. I, um, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's that. I don't. I think probably that is the case, and I don't think it's necessarily like a big, you know, lie that she sort of concocted and put a lot of thought or planning into. Or, but I think, um, I think she tells a falsehood. You know, um, in the moment, maybe, but still sort of does it. And then and then definitely with the doctor, you know, even yeah, she even I, blames Danny. She says it was his idea to stop. <laughs> he changed his mind. And he's that's a clear lie. It, yeah, you know? no, I, I agree with that. It was more more her conversation with Danny. That yeah. I was thinking. So, I, OK, you're right. Um, I guess where I was going with all of that, though, is that even even with that we also get her 
choosing very deliberately to lie to Maisie earlier in the episode yeah. uh, based on what the doctor wants. Now, here's the thing that I'm getting at is that we've gotten Clara talking, you know, about herself and also sort of the implication that she's acting as the doctor's conscience. Mm. And that her being there is somehow uh, helping the doctor make better, more moral, whatever choices. Mm -hmm. However, as we go on, we're seeing Clara acting more and more like the doctor. So is this becoming something that's affecting her ability to be that conscience if the choices are you know, more and more the doctor and less and less sort of the choices she, Yeah, I would say, I was going to say the choices that she would make, but she's the one making the choices. So it's like the choices that maybe previously she would have made. Right. Um, right. And the question is, does that mean that she's becoming less and less the doctor's conscience? Or does it mean that she's understanding more and more the complexities of what the doctor is going through. And so it's not so much that she was the doctor's conscience before, but now she's understanding that there's, you know, more to having a conscience than, you know, just simply always doing quote the right thing, Mm. whatever that the right thing is. Right. Um, And I don't know. I don't, I don't know that we have enough about sort of where, Right. Their character arcs are taking them to make that determination. Sure. That, no, I think the, that's kind of a good, those are good questions to sort of for the, you know, rest of the season and potentially for the rest of her sort of overall character arc. Yeah. I think those are really good. That's um, kind of, those are the big questions for her right now. And I think, and the lying has a kind of symbolic weight in that, you know, because you kind of get her. You know, at first, that kind of like more black and white moral indignation at being made to lie, you know, for him that, you know, she's sort of angry of you lied to me again and you made me lie and lies are bad. And that kind of that's that that sort of conscience thing, you know, coming out of like you can't do bad things just because you're trying to get good results or something but by the end because it's it's wrong exactly um but like by the end you do get him giving a fairly convincing argument for why white lies might be necessary sometimes you know like well i couldn't because you know the bad guy would find out and we had to protect it and you know his thing about you know i can't you know, promise to save people if I, you know, we get the doctor promising to save a lot of people he can't save. So isn't it better to sort of tell them what you they need to hear to get them to do what you want so that you can save them? And isn't that better? You know, so who cares what lies I tell if I save as many people as possible? And so then, you know, by the end, you get her telling a few lies of her own, you know, for either maybe they're white lies or not. You can sort of, you know, debate that, I think. But um, her kind of, I don't know how much of that she's sort of 
conscious of, but I think you see like a progression there of like her becoming more comfortable with lying and lying as sort of an extension of one of the things the doctor does, you know, that's rule one, you know, that's part of being the doctor is being a liar. Um, Well, and the other thing, of course, that I'm thinking of in all this is uh, what Danny said to her a couple episodes ago when, uh, yeah, it was at the end of the school episode, right? Where, Mm -hmm. you know, he says, uh, you know, if you don't, like, if you lie to me, I can't help you. Or I don't remember exactly how he says it, but, you know, and and I can't stand not being able to help you. So, and and it's very much sort of like an ultimatum. Like, you always tell me the truth or... Yeah, you know we're, we're not, not going to be a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so she's sort here of she is arguably violating that rule. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and and like I think, I mean, at the time that was more about like the doctor pushing her too far, mm-hmm. but then we get kill the moon where he pushes her too far, and we yeah. get here where again, like you pointed out, like she's angry because he pushed her too far. He pushed her into lying. And, you know, now she's more comfortable with it and lying to Danny about mm-hmm. what's going on. So there's definitely, you know, a progression here going on. And yeah. uh, she's doing the very thing that sort of Danny said not to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be, you know, it's sort of the deal breaker for the relationship. And, you know, as... I would argue should be for any relationship that lying mm. should be a deal breaker. Even, you know, lying about little white lies, you know, right. my, not lying about the white, but get, you know, using little white lies or whatever. Right. Um, you know, it, it, right. There, well, there's no the sense sort of, in it. Well, and that's the sort of thing about lies is they never stay little, you know, like yeah. they sort yeah. of, or white. <laughs> or white. They inevitably sort of take on a life of their own, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's sort of, no matter how innocent and virtuous you might think they are, you know, um, it, they, they have a habit of sort of getting out of control. Um, you know, and I think from the doctor's point of view too, like where you can see that kind of, shades of gray creeping into Clara becoming a bit more, you know, doctorish or, you know, amoral or whatever. I think with the doctor, you get, you know, from the opposite side, I mean, we're used to all those things with the doctor. So you do get a pretty, um, a bit more of a nuanced thing for him than last time. You know, we don't end up with the kind of kill the moon, like very sort of, stark dramatic situation like you get him in here it's not the kind of coldness of kill the moon of you know i'm gonna leave you to do he kind of does the opposite like rather than you know leave everyone to their fate in this and maybe as a result of kill the moon he's very committed to the we're gonna save people you know in any way we can kind of idea um you know to the extent of lying to them and you know, even taking on Maisie's, you know, symptoms for himself and everything. I like his little arrogant thing of like, one minute with me and it would be done. Like, like the only thing we need is for it to transfer over to me and then I can figure it out. Um, and but, it becomes true. <laughs> and it's true. Um, 
but like you know his thing at the end of you know i think there are a lot of times where he's made promises that he couldn't keep so you know you kind of get you said earlier about clara um maybe just understanding a bit more what it's like to be the doctor and the one who makes these impossible choices. And so I think you get that section at the end about, um, you know, I, I can't promise things because I don't know if I can save these people, but what he can promise to do is to just keep trying and go from the next one to the next one to the next one until, you know, he does figure it out. And so you kind of get that burden of, you know, he is usually the one who makes the hard choices, but at least he never gives up, you know? Like, he doesn't, like, you know, I think Clara's trauma from Kill the Moon is largely because of the situation, but also the fact that that was the first time she'd ever been put in that sort of situation. And, you know, you get a sense from the doctor that this is, he's in that situation on like a pretty much daily basis, you know, and then, you know, he's sort of used to it. Um, but so I think you get yeah. a little bit more compassion for where he's coming from than, um, than there was in the last episode, I think. Yeah. Although I do think too, that there's still sort of that, that there's still sort of, like Claire is not quite reading it exactly right either because mm -hmm. you do get that thing of like where she's like oh okay so you were you were just pretending to be heartless mm -hmm. like you weren't yeah. really being heartless and he's like would you would you like to think that about me would that make it easier um and where he sort of explains like I had no idea if I could save her or yeah. not she might have died at which point I would have gone to the next person and he kind of comes up with like yeah, actually, it is kind of heartless, <laughs> like right. that. That, but it, but it really didn't have anything to do with her specifically, right? Uh, and that I lied to her to get her. But of course, the goal is to stop the beast. So right. you know, right? It's it's heartless in that detached, clinical, doctorish way of he is cold and analytical and hurtful to save you, you know? And so you can argue all day about whether he should be those things or whether there's a better way to go about it. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that he's not interested in making himself nice or cuddly or sweet if those things aren't gonna be the things which help you in the end. You know, right. he has this sort of, especially this incarnation, has that more pragmatic, goal-oriented, you know, um, you know, I'm in the saving people business and not the, like, making people feel good about themselves business. Um, so in that way, there's a kind of, you know, positive aspect to it, you know, although, you know, that's not to say that that's always the kindest, you know, way to sort of go about it. Yep. Yep. On that note. We're way and, over. Yeah, almost 20 minutes over. We need to move on to Angel. Because um, I have a feeling we might yeah. end up talking Want a long time. to say a few things uh, about Angel. About this as well. So, uh, yeah. Where would you like to begin? So... I feel like we've gotten into this, we've had a lot of flashbacks this season. 
Um, in fact, I'm kind of surprised, like, you know, that's really the, the Angel Darla flashbacks have sort of become like the major component of at least the first half of the season. So that's kind of yeah. a bit of a shift. Um, we certainly had them in season one, but they were more sort of intermittent. Whereas I definitely feel like alongside the modern day angel plot, we've also got this like flashback plot, which we're following. That's sort of telling a coherent story. Um, you know, yeah. that's un sort of unfolding over the weeks and everything. And, and one of the things that I like about it too, is that, um, even even sometimes we're getting like the like the before stories in the flashbacks right. so like like you know like here like they're in france and this is before they go to right. uh you romania know, to yeah romania where where angel ends up you know getting his soul back and that kind of thing and then like other flashbacks that we've seen have been after that point mm -hmm. you know like but he's still with like darla and stuff before you know, she sort of figures out he has a soul. So they right. like even like in order of the flashbacks, we're getting sort of flashbacks. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's like they or... they drop the little clues that that help you form like the timeline of where this fits in the, right. the puzzle and everything. Um, so yeah, so I did want to start. So it's France, and and it's pretty far back. It's seventeen fifty six or sixty five. Sorry. And, um, you know, so this is pre, um, Drew and, uh, Spike and all that. Um, and obviously the, you know, before the Romanian gypsies and everything. Um, but you get this, so you have them fleeing from a lynch mob, which sounds as though it's sort of instigated by this guy named Holtz who is a mortal, but a vampire hunter. So interesting, not a slayer, but like a Van Helsing type, you know, vampire hunter um, yep. who's tracking them down. Um, and they get sort of cornered in this barn. Um, and interesting, kind of unexpected, I felt like, I feel like early Angelus, I would expect to be a bit more cavalier, but... Um, He's quite worried. Like, it's kind of funny to see. He's the one who wants to keep a lookout and barricade the door and do all these things. And it's Darla who's this sort of free spirit of, oh, you know, they're not going to find us. Let's just, you know, have fun and roll in the hay and do all this sort of stuff, you know, uh, just to amuse ourselves. She doesn't seem particularly worried. Um, but you know, when they do get sort of cornered and attacked and they set the barn on fire, um, she's obviously not completely, you know, uh, cool with it because she knocks Angel in the head and then steals the horse. So <laughs> you get, which, like, I don't think we've had that implied that it seems to me like everything we've had so far pre-Angel getting his soul back has been very much the two of them as a pair and as these sort of companions. But you're getting this sort of, um, you know, selfish... I mean, 
I don't want to say they were selfless before, but they did seem to be partners in a sense. Like they were in this together, you know, even if what they were doing was evil, they at least had a loyalty to each other. Um, whereas here, that's not what Darla does. She takes her chance and steals the horse and seems pretty sure that he'll survive, but like is sort of willing to sort of leave him to his fate and just sort of hope that one day they'll see each other again. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> it is definitely an interesting uh, dynamic between the two. And I, I mean, of course they talk about even even in this episode, you know, uh, they talk about like being together for 150 years. But right. yeah, like not necessarily that's, that's clearly, Yeah. Well, and it's clearly sort of a revisionist history going on there. Uh, you know, it's it's the sort of rosy glasses that you put on, you know, about a relationship. Oh, you know, we always got along well together. It just right. didn't work out, you know, when it's not true for any relationship there's always going to be ups and downs this seems to be a down <laughs> um yeah. you know where under pressure uh darla sort of takes advantage of the fact that angelus uh you know is sort of not paying attention and so knocks him out and or knocks him down anyway and sort of takes the horse and runs away yeah um and of course, we do know that they meet up again and even eventually end up in Romania and, yeah. uh, you know, are together there as well. So, uh, yeah, seven, so 1765, you know, again. Um, so, all right, I, I have to point this out. Um, use of the term lynch mob, little mm -hmm. and slightly anachronistic. Um, sure. The, the, the actually origin of the term appears to be in the 1780s. So not... Mm -hmm not wholly uh you, you know but maybe 15 to 20 years uh yeah. early um also they're in continental europe and they're uh well darla was from the colonies but seems right. to have migrated to continental europe you know yeah. shortly thereafter so uh you know just some not maybe not a huge thing but that yeah. did sort of bug me i had to look up uh that etymology right um, right uh Maybe not a huge thing, but yeah, the the idea of Holtz and sort of vampire hunters, very European idea that mm -hmm. there are these vampire hunters going around. Yeah. Um, and and so again, with with sort of you know Darla taking her leave, you do. I don't want to draw too strong of a connection either way because you do get the sense of partnership, but they are still demons and they are still vampires. And yeah, you know, we have seen other vampire loyalty before, you know, with the master and sort of his crew and other sort of vampire crews that they're loyal, but to an extent, up to like, a point. Yeah. You know, if it become, if it's a chance for me to get away Life and, or death situation, and, yeah. and I have to knock you down and leave you behind in order mm -hmm. to do that, I'm going to do that because right. Ultimately, I am a demon, and that's right. what demons do. Um, right. Again, with all the caveats um, that we've had before about, you know, what demon, does it mean to yeah, be demons evil? Demons are people, too. And um, so, so, sorry, I just want to finish this train of thought, because we do get later, you know, uh, Angel saying, 
like I wasn't capable of loving Darla when he and sort of Lindsay are phased. So there's that aspect too of like, like we shouldn't confuse their partnership with love. Right. That right. that as vampires, they're actually they are soulless and not capable of love. So even I think we see, you know, Darla sort of misunderstanding what she's feeling now and replacing with what she felt then because like when she goes into the bar and is you know asking mr mullet vampire Mm -hmm. you know to turn her she's like you know she's sort of got this romantic idea and and the mullet vampire is like you don't really understand what it's like and that's kind of true Mm -hmm. she's not understanding what it's like she's giving her sort of human perspective now and the feelings that she seems to be associating with angel which may sort of be gearing towards love or at least respect and whatever Mm -hmm. uh and confusing that with what they had before right and you know she oh it was a mythic well (laughs) you know is that you know based on the facts that we see in the flashback wasn't really that not so mythic yeah uh you know yeah well, yeah. so, and that anyway. that brings up a few other questions for me. Like one, putting that alongside Buffy, what does that tell us about the whole Spike plot? You know, of Spike becoming more and more into Buffy and okay, if if vampires are not capable of love, does that tell us that Spike's sort of interest in Buffy is purely sort of obsessive and mm-hmm. you know, maybe you know, maybe obsessive, maybe erotic, maybe all these other things, but not caring, you know, um, mm. like, you know, cause we've seen like where he didn't attack her and sort of comforted her. So how is that possible if he's not capable of it? So I think that's just interesting sort of, I don't know, right. you know, where that'll go. I think that's, that's an open evolving question, obviously. Um, and that's a good question to ask too. Is Angel accurate when he says I wasn't right. capable of loving her? Right, right. Because uh, he also says that about Lindsay, who's not a vampire. So that's not necessarily right something is, that which is purely tied to your state as human or demon. That there's something about Lindsay maybe isn't capable of it because he's a bad guy. You know, like he isn't you know, emotionally or morally, you know, advanced enough to feel it. But he has a soul. He's human. It's not like he's, it's not because he's a soulless vampire. So, yeah. So what does Angel mean when he says, I'm not capable of it? Um, Is that like literally true? Or is that just sort of about his sort of state of like moral decay, you know? Um, the other thing, which I think it kind of kind of informs the background, the rest of the story of this episode of the lengths that Angel goes to to sort of rescue Darla and, you know, give her another chance at redemption and all these things, is it kind of even further makes that a selfless act on Angel's part because you could kind of like write off his sort of obsession with saving her as like lingering nostalgia for this relationship that they used to have. 
but you kind of see in this like that relationship wasn't all that fantastic to begin with like I mean obviously the like we're soulless demons part of it but like even as partners they weren't always together like she sells him out when she has the opportunity to you know so he's it, it kind of further takes away like the motivation to you know this isn't someone who's earned any love from him you know or mm. earned his you know uh you know she hasn't given him reasons to want to do the things that he's doing in this episode. Um, and maybe he has different and complicated reasons for doing it, but you know, um, it kind of, if you had a notion of the two of them as having this, you know, epic vampire romance, this kind of subverts that idea and says like, they weren't always, in it together and loyal to each other. And, you know, Darla wasn't really his partner or companion in any real sense. Like they were sort of together when it was sort of convenient and they would, you know, uh, go against each other when that became the smartest thing to do in terms of their preservation. So, um, yeah, or at least, I mean, I don't want to make more of it than it is either, because, like, we only see it happen once. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, the suggestion is that maybe it did happen more than once. So, you know, I don't, or I don't just know it, that. It, it was capable of happening. Like, not that they would do it right. with no reason, but, like you said, they're loyal up to a point. There's a limit. They don't have endless, limitless devotion. You know, right. there's, it's conditional. Um, and so, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you necessarily would sacrifice everything for and lay down your life for in that, in the sense of like, you know, mm -hmm. normal, you know, epic romance, you know. Um, right. Right. It's not quite as mythic as she remembers. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and it kind of out of proportion with the mythic lengths that Angel is willing to go to in order to redeem her, you know? Um, so, yeah, I want to come back to the kind of uh, trial plot. Um, but first, I guess let's talk about, like, the greater situation. Um, because... We get um, the follow-up on her disease, which we saw her sort of, you know, her original human form was dying of syphilis, you know, mm -hmm. back in the colonial era. And um, so we kind of had that question of now that she's back human, does the disease come along with it? And the answer being yes, unfortunately for her, um, that seems to be the case. Um, Although I would say... You know, the bringing her back as human seemed to have sort of regressed it a bit because, like, she was literally on her deathbed. On her bed, deathbed, yeah. You know, yeah. when we so, like, you know, it didn't come back, like, it seems to have come back uh, quickly, but maybe not as 
immediately and emphatically, yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess as it as it had been. But so I mean, you know, certainly now, you know, she's dying instead of maybe within a few hours, within a few months. So you know, not that much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Um. So, and I think even if she didn't know it until now, you kind of get the idea that that's part of what lies behind that kind of her discomfort with being human. Like, I mean, I'm sure that's not all of it, but you know, you, you almost get the sense of she can kind of feel it like she knows it, you know, and, and that her time is sort of limited. Um, and that's sort of one of the, reason she's so desperate to have Angel or somebody turn her back into a vampire. Um, so, you know, I wanted to kind of talk through like the different reactions that we get. Um, you know, and we, so, so we started talking about Darla with the kind of like dorky vampire in the bar. Like he's, you know, was turned in 1992. So, you know, which he thinks is kind of impressive and, Right. She, I know. You know. Hard to believe it's last century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like all of eight years, you know. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, her kind of going after any old Joe who will sort of do the job for her. Um, and even having to sort of... Right. He's never even done it before. So she has to sort of coax him and talk him through it and convince him that this is a good idea and everything. He's not so sure. Well, and, and I love that his reaction is like, wait, why are you coming to me with this? Which is, okay, like, ignoring the vampire aspect, like, and and sort of focusing on the sort of underlying sexual aspect of it. Right. The, you know, of course, you know, sort of the weird looking hick in a dive bar, you know, has a beautiful woman coming up and saying, hey, let's go do this crazy intimate thing together it's th there is going to be that sort of pause and say wait why why are you interested in me what's why, the catch what's, yeah yeah what's going on here and i and i like that he sort of <coughs> excuse me he sort of like smells something mm. isn't right but isn't quite sure what to make of it and is sort of you know uh seeing seeing something wrong with the situation but at the same time sort of uh, having, you know, strong visceral urges, uh, at the same time. So, um, I just, I, I like the way that sort of set up and played out. Mm -hmm. Um, seems, seems pretty funny. Uh, but yeah. Uh, right. Her. So, yeah, I mean, she's clearly just trying to find someone to, and, 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 you know, promising basically whatever, use me, however, do whatever, you know, for as long as you want, I don't care, you know, I don't care. I just want this thing, knowing that as soon as she's a vampire, like she'll just ignore whatever she right. promised, uh, you know, for him anyway. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's that aspect too. Like she's completely just not caring about what it takes. She just has her mind very focused on mm -hmm. turning into a vampire. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and you kind of get that if she had her way, obviously Angel would do it. Like she sort of had already asked him and continues to ask him. But, um, 
you get his sort of resistance to the, you know, and, and him kind of saying like, he doesn't, you know, while she's human, he wants to sort of still try to save her and redeem her. But, you know, if he were to turn her, he would have no choice but to kill her, you know, like mm. that. So it's not even just trying to save her life and her soul, but also that's not something he wants to end up going through and doing, you know, um, obviously he's done it before, but he doesn't want to do it again. And he actually doesn't, you know, uh, wish her ill in that way. So he kind of has a few different reasons, um, for not wanting to turn her. Mm. Um, and you also kind of just get his, his hesitation about, is this even true? You know, like the first part of the episode is mostly him going like convinced that this is a trick of Wolfram and Hart. Um, you know, yeah. that this is one of their mind games and they're just telling you this to get you to turn yourself and, you know, all these things, which we find out isn't the case, but like, as always with both from and heart, there's that truth mixed in with the lies kind of thing of, uh, it's all true, but that doesn't mean it's not still manipulative, you know, like, right. Like the medical reports are real and, you know, Sahal and very innocent. Well, you know, we just want you to know the facts and, you know, um, we're doing this for your best interest, but like, of course they have reasons for giving her this information you know they wouldn't give it to her if it didn't suit their purposes um for yeah. her to know this so you still get you know there's the ulterior motive underneath there too well and i mean obviously the timing of it uh you know the question like they they clearly knew almost from the beginning they've known this all along uh, yeah. so you know Lindsay brings up the fact that like oh you know this could have been cured with antibiotics. Well, what if, if they knew, you know, within say the first couple of days of her coming back, would that right. have been early enough or not? So, right. um, I mean, maybe not, we don't, we don't know for sure, but you could have tried and you didn't mm -hmm. instead. You just sort of waited around until it was convenient for you to tell her, you know, that this is going on. So yeah. Yeah. There's even just the idea, like, you're right. Like it's, not untrue, but clearly, yeah, it is manipulative, manipulative and, and, you know, timing has a big part of that mm -hmm. manipulation. Um, and, and so what, I mean, it seems fairly obvious that the motive then is to get her to have herself, you know, turn herself into a vampire. I'm curious why they don't just offer that like right there. And then, right, right, like, well, oh, hey, look, here's a vampire. Yeah, you know, wouldn't I mean? I guess there's a sense of that's part of the con is you have to get the person to think it's their idea that like it's too is it too? You know, I mean, probably not. If they offered it, she would accept and wouldn't really think twice. But like, I feel like that's usually the way. Is like. You, you just give them the information and sort of suggest something and let the person go off and like actually make the decision on their own. And they think I've had this brilliant idea when yeah. really it's what you wanted them to do all along. That's sort of 
the classic con as I understand it. But um Yeah, and that may may or may not be true. Um But then like I don't even know that that matters because, you know, Angel says like they're using you and she's like, Yeah, I know, I don't care. Or, like she's fully aware that she's being used and manipulated. But again, that doesn't mean that she still doesn't want to be immortal, you know? Right. Um, that doesn't, you know, fix her situation. To know that right. they're manipulating her doesn't actually protect her from anything. Right. Um, uh, and the, so, um, right, so she goes off and, and does, you know, try to find someone to turn her. Uh, you know, the other thing from sort of the Wolfram and Hart perspective, though, it's like, okay, like she hasn't tried to become a vampire really before now. Um, so like clearly that's why they're revealing that information. But yeah. also, you know, I I don't know that we ever get sort of their full idea of what their plan is. Um, obviously they wanted initially her to sort of, uh, you know, take Angel's soul away from him and so he becomes Angelus again. And then I guess they would assume that like as Angelus he would like turn her into a vampire or kill her. Either way is fine. Like right. it sort of deals with her in some aspect or another. Yeah. And so now this is sort of like, okay, clearly we failed. Uh Darla's dying, doesn't have much longer. So right. we have to what's, get what's this sort moving. of yeah. Well and what's sort of the best way to go about it? Okay we'll just have her turn into a vampire without Angelus then. So like, this is like plan B. Uh, there's, it's sort of like, you know, they're mitigating circumstances and, and, you know, moving forward with, uh, the best that they can do in this amount of time kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, before they have complete loss of yes. the fund and time, you know, funding and time that they put into all of this. Right. So, um, Right, they're sort of trying to salvage the situation I, a bit. I also like that <laughs> Holland sort of claims Darla as their moral responsibility, as though anything that they've done is, you know, moral in any kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, also, you know, another good sort of jab at lawyers uh, being, like, worse than you know, blood-sucking fiends. Right, Cordy's kind of sort of, yeah. Yeah. Lawyer joke. Uh, and, and, well, and even Angel saying, right, we were amateurs. <laughs> like, yeah. like, the lawyers are the real professionals about, you know, screwing Evil, right, right, yeah. Um, so, this continues to be kind of a fun metaphor there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I want to bring up, too, that potentially there's more going on with Lindsay than with Holland or with the kind of larger corporation, you know, so you, you know, he seems, he never actually says the words, you know, I love her, but like, he seems to have more personal investment, you know, than it's not just trying to get the job done, but, um, you know, he kind of says to Angel, if we believe him that he, you know, doesn't want her to die, like, just because he feels that way, not because he has to for his job. Um, you know, and Angel sort of says you're not capable of it, and Lindsay doesn't necessarily deny that. Um, <laughs> but um, although he does kind of 
say, you know, slam Angel in the sense of, well, I must care about her more than you because I'm willing to save her and you're not. So, you know, he kind of puts a, you know, the, the price of her life is apparently worth more than like the means of how you achieve it. So, you know, if, yeah. if we're rating this on who will go farther to save her, then I'm winning, you know? Um, it, except for that, you know, it comes down to, and you know, in Angel's view, you're not really saving her. You're taking away her soul right. and, you know, giving it to a demonic, right. you know, possession, basically. And that's so, kind of further strengthens his argument that Lindsay isn't really capable of true love. Like, he doesn't understand. He may think he's feeling something or, you know, doing, trying to do what's in her best interest, but that's clearly not the case or he wouldn't be trying to do the things that he's doing. Um, right. You know, so he has, again, this sort of sense of looking out for her, but it's really no better than, you know, what, you know, Wolfram and Hart want to do, really. Um, and it's certainly not in her best interest. It sort of just extends her life, but doesn't yeah. really save her in any meaningful sense. Lindsay continues to play the very conflicted man, uh, conflicted in loyalty anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, still likes to kind of fancy himself the kind of moral outlier among the Wolfram and Hart crowd, maybe. Like, I think he kind of imagines that I work for this company, but I'm not really on their side or... You know, they or I'm or, somehow better than them. Or I'm somehow like because I because I care about Darla, that makes it okay. You know, or like there's some sort of like justification going on here yeah. of he's sort of convincing himself of his sort of superiority to mm-hmm. the rest of, you know, his company. Um and obviously that's not necessarily accurate because he's pretty much doing the same things as them. It's just, he feels more conflict about it. Um, right. But, um, okay. Well, I don't want to skip, I'm going to leave what he does at the end for the end. Um, yeah, but okay. So the next thing. Well, so court, let's Cordy and Wesley obviously are not too thrilled. No, uh, I, I love Cordy. Um, Oh, so you're staying just for the night then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just for the you're one saying, night. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm dying. Oh, so just yeah. for the night then? Um, <laughs> like she's going to die like tonight, like right now. Right, right. Uh, and I mean Wesley's sort of his usual sort of high ground mm-hmm. self about everything. Um, I like I like how you know Angel's like, well, you're not you're not a prisoner, and then they're like, you're a prisoner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry about the dying, but if you try to escape, we will hit you <laughs> on the head yes. with very large and heavy objects. <laughs> yeah, I like uh, that kind of back and forth of you get them sort of on the same side against her. Like, you know. Yeah. More. We more, we uh, may bicker, but we agree about our dislike of Darla. Um, yeah, I was going to say like more in in sync on this than perhaps anything that they've ever been, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, talking about before. Well, and and I think just that the you have to kind of remember too, 
the, you know, faith that they're putting in Angel, you know, that like he's been acting rather weird lately um, and he's bringing very dangerous people to stay with them in their like home. So, you know, it's, that's quite an ask, I think. Um, Oh yeah. So there's the sense in which like they are very uh, aware of, how kind of hairy this situation is getting, um, you know, and then it's getting sort of more and more unstable, you know, by the episode, basically. Um, like they're worried enough about Angel himself without him bringing like known killers to the hotel and then like leaving, you know, like leaving them sure. alone with her. And, you know, obviously she's a human, but I think they're probably right to be quite wary of Darla. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't uh, blame them for their reactions at all. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, and then, so just sort of from a plot perspective, we also get, uh, you know, we get the host then yeah. being um, sort of the next reaction that we have to Darla's uh, humanity um, and impending uh, death. And, you know, so Angel brings her there uh, to Caritas and, you know, has her saying, which so apparently um, uh, Julie Benz, who mm-hmm. plays Darla, uh, had horrible stage fright and didn't really like singing. I thought she did quite a fine job. Yeah, no, um, she doesn't have a bad voice at all. And and but apparently she was very nervous about that whole scene and uh, all of that. And in that, fact, uh, I think the scene sort of depends on her having a good voice because the whole thing is that it's the contrast to like the goofy angel singing. You know, like angels really sure. bad at karaoke, and it's always really funny and awkward. Whereas, like, right, I think the scene, the impact of it is that she gets up there and it's like, oh, she's actually good. And right. and her song, she has so much like pathos and like, you know, uh, passion in her song, you know, so it wouldn't work if she wasn't, you know, uh, giving a good performance, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I agree with that completely. Um and that's kind of what takes the host back. Like, whoa, <laughs> oh, this one is serious. Like, you know, this is like actually pretty far along and we may not be able to save her. You can tell that just because of like, you know, the the soulfulness of her singing. Right, right. Um, and also sort of with the, the jazzy bluesness of it, another yeah. sort of link to... Yeah. Uh, the Doctor Who episode there. Yes, um, you're right. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of, because we got sort of the song, uh, I, I don't remember what it was there. Oh, um, it, Ill Wind, it's a Billie Holiday. Um, no, no, I mean the oh. song from Doctor Who. But yeah, you're right. Like oh, Ill, right. Ill, Ill Wind is is the song that she sings here. I love the uh, the line to, you're only misleading the sunshine I'm needing, um, which of course in a vampire yeah. uh, show has interesting connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, so back to her going to Caritas and singing uh, 
Darla, that is. Uh, the host, uh, <laughs> we get the ooh. <laughs> um, you know, that there's there's a problem there. Um, and of course there is. We also get, well, okay, so we get his, we get his reading of Darla. We get him reading Angel. Mm -hmm. Right, he's a channel surfer. Yeah, and all right, so we don't really know much about uh, the host's capabilities at this point, other than that he reads auras. We're told that he needs people to sing in order to um, in order to read those auras. But this is actually the second time that we've got him reading Angel mm. uh, without Angel being the one to actually sing. Right. So uh, just wanted to point that out. Not, I don't want to make a huge deal out of it, but that, yeah, like he's, maybe the singing isn't quite right. accurate. Like maybe yeah, he I, just likes to make people sing. Right. Like, the, yeah. Well, the two, two possibilities. Yeah. Maybe one is just a mischievous kind of, if I tell them they have to sing, then they have to do karaoke. And this is right. really funny. And it's, it's, you know, <laughs> more entertaining than just doing a regular reading. Um, but also like, I think maybe, maybe the singing could be like the microphone, like maybe it enhances and amplifies things, but it doesn't mean that that's the only way he can do it. You know, sure. like, sure. okay, you get up on stage with a spotlight and you choose a song and you lay your soul bare. And so it becomes very easy to read, but that doesn't mean that that's the only circumstances you know so right. like he can read just angel watching darla is enough to get you know the you know get some waves coming off of him right um right. Yeah. you know and i think he actually reads he's more interested in angel in some ways like like darla's sort of depressing vibe is very clear and then he very quickly switches over to you know okay what's going on with you you know, and what do you want to do and why do you want to do it? And should I help you or not? Um. Yeah. And so there's an interesting aspect, too, because. So we get we get a little bit of conversation. Um, so we're get we're kind of moving into the trial portion. Anything else you want to say about reactions to Darla and no. her situation? No. OK, go. So we get. Um, we get a little conversation with the host about uh, the last time when Angel was there and he sort of got, he's got sent to the Swami yeah. uh, and well, maybe that wasn't the last time, but that time when yes, he got sent yes. to the Swami and uh, Angel sort of still a little bit upset about that. Um, turns out uh, there was a bartender who like overheard their conversation right. and sort of uh, gave them up. At least that's the, that's what they think. And, and, right. The host is upset because right. he made a really good sea breeze. And so now right. he uh, can't but, have that anymore. And so it's funny to like, okay, we're kind of, you know, um, excusing him from the culpability of that. Like it wasn't that he sent right. him with sort of like, oh, there was this traitor and, you know, he eavesdropped and sold us out. So, you know, but like. I don't know how to read. Maybe this is reading too much into it, but like, is there something kind of sinister in that of like, how did he get rid of him? Because like, even to me, like the line of, 
he's no longer on the menu. Like a sort of <laughs> like, is that because he ate him or like, you know, uh, it, it kind of made me think like, hmm, like I, I think the host is a good guy. I want him to be a good guy. And but like, we still don't know much, that much about him and kind of what he's capable of, really. So like, how how tight of a ship does he run here? I don't know. Um, interesting. That's a I I have thoughts. I would, I, the only thing I would say, um, and you can take it how you will, uh-huh. is that, you know, he does set up Caritas to be a violence-free... A place zone. of mercy, right. So, yeah. now, that that's not to say that he couldn't have done something to him outside of Caritas. Right. Well, <laughs> uh, and I'm not necessarily <laughs> judging him for that, because if this was, like someone who was out to get them, then maybe he needed to do something about it. But, you know, I just wasn't sure how conspicuous the mention of the menu was supposed to be. Um, Um, You know, just just because he's an entrepreneur who provides a safe place for demons to drink and and sing away their sorrows doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't have other tendencies, you know, beyond that. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, I would just... Like I said, take it how you will. Um, anyway, so my my point with bringing up that is to say that we get now a second time of the host sending Angel somewhere uh, where ultimately he's not helped. Right. Uh, right. That that this is you know That's it's true. like okay I'll give you, you you want you want a way to help I'll give you help I'll give you a quest you know yeah. and. And and you get the sort of the wink wink of the you know, uh, diving in sort of stuff. So, um, or taking a plunge or whatever you know mm-hmm. whatever the metaphor was. And so, now again, like in the end, you know we get Jeeves. So okay, the other thing, the guy the guy doesn't actually have a name. I think the uh, credits call him the valet or the the right. the valet as you might <laughs> say uh with a british accent um you know but angel calls him jeeves so we can call him jeeves jeeves works uh, yeah yeah uh so you get jeeves uh not realizing either till after the trial so right you know again like you could either read this nefariously as like okay this is the host sort of sending him once again to a place where he doesn't get helped right but is right. he doing so maliciously is sort of the right. question. There could and, be perfectly innocent explanations um, for these things. And I don't know that we have an answer, but just sort of, yeah, you know, just pointing out that once again, there's like another sort of misdirected right. uh, thing going on here. With right. Those. But what, and what's interesting about that is that there's the allusion to him kind of knowing the future of like, there's the joke about, I might regret this actually being prescient. I'm sure of it. (laughs) So he's, you know, again, how literally do we take that is, can he tell the future? Is he prescient? Um, Is this just a joke? You know, like how I think there's a number of ways if, if he does have a sense of the future, then shouldn't he know that, that this is not going to be, end up being a helpful thing or are there, 
are there good qual benefits that we just don't understand yet? You know, it seems to sort of go horribly and, wrong, but, um, and how accurately does he see the future? So like, right. you know, he reads auras and he can sort of help people on their paths, but that doesn't necessarily mean he sees the entirety of what that path contains. Like it right. might be that like, yeah, like maybe he knows on balance, this is better than not doing it. And mm -hmm. so, or he might just know that like, however it works out, this is what Angel needs to do. And yes, I'm going to regret it later, but as this is my skill, this is what I need to tell him kind of thing. So right. like, there's a couple different ways. Again, yeah. like... It can mean a lot of different things. So I, I know we've talked a lot about not really knowing what the host is up to. I don't know if this sets your mind at ease, but I'll, I'll say this much. By the end of this season, we'll know a lot more about the host. Okay, good. <laughs> so stick with it. Keep, you know, your eyes and ears open. Good, because um, you know what? I really like that character a lot. Like, you know, that's one of my favorite elements of the show, I think. So um, I'm is, glad to know good, that we're going to get a lot more of him. He's a good character, yes. Um, and we even get his name at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah. Shocking, yeah. Uh, just not yet. So, okay, so yeah. So we get Angel and Darla going to this place. Um, Angel takes the plunge and proves he has faith. Although, I, that part of it, like, I'm not quite sure, like, what it's proving he has faith in. I guess in... The host? The host, because that's who told him to go there. But, like, it also might be one of those things, like... Um, you know, it might be sort of a shepherd book thing. I don't care what you have faith right. in, just have faith. You right, know, right. Um, you have to prove that you're willing to do something which seems un, you know, uh, illogical, you know. Yeah. Like, you're willing to take on faith, you know, instructions that might not make sense, um, you know. Right. And And you get that line of, like, I'm either coming back with a cure or you're about to see something kind of funny. Like, right, right. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm either, this is going to work really well or I'm going to go splat. Yeah. And w while we know that decapitation, you know, will kill a vampire, we're not clear on like the uh, head smashing, you right. know, head first into a concrete thing. Like, does that count as decapitation? Right, or right. is that, is that a recoverable thing? Right, right. <laughs> there, there's a little if, uh, iffiness going on there yeah um but yeah so we get we get into the trial and or we get into you know sort of the antechamber of mm -hmm. the you know where the trials take place and and we meet this new uh jeeves character and um yeah so what what are your thoughts on sort of the whole like it takes a shift about mid-episode now we're yeah. into like this you know, this quest portion mm -hmm. uh, of the episode. And it, I mean, it does actually kind of go by fast, but yeah. it does seem like it's, it's sort of a coherent story within a story. Yeah. Uh, so to speak itself. Well, yeah. So, um, you know, for me, I've been for another project reading um, a ton of books on fairy tales and it doesn't take any sort of expert in the genre to, you know, recognize the kind of fairy tale 
nature of the trials that you have these sort of three tests, which are supposed to sort of prove something, you know, so three is always significant. Um, and, and it is that kind of take it on faith idea of things which seem, you know, either, you know, ridiculous or impossible, you know, um, in order to sort of prove your, you know, your medal, and then you're sort of rewarded at the end of it. Um, so, you know, uh, for Angel, it's, it's, it's less sort of, um, tasks he has to perform than just things to survive or not survive. You know, it's sort of, you know, fighting, you know, a really big armored demon that, you know, rejoins its limbs when you sort of cut him in half and everything. Um, you know, or, you know, walking across the, the crucifixes and the holy water, you know, and everything. So it's not like he has to go like, you know, uh, you know, find objects or, you know, you know, do any sort of task in that way. Um, but it still has that kind of, you know, tripartite structure to it. Um, you know, which was kind of one of the things that jumped out to me. Um, you know, and, and I think what we talked about a bit <coughs> earlier in relation to Gus in the Jeeves as the kind of true neutral, you know, uh, organizer of this whole thing that he has <coughs> no, um, opinion or influence. He's not, he's not malevolent, but he's also not a helper either. You know, he's not going to give you any hints or clues or assistance. He's just there to sort of oversee the process. Right. Um, you know, and it's interesting yeah. that they chose a very kind of detached, you know, English butler for that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> um, yeah, uh, so you also get the idea, too, that, like, you know, he's detached, but you also wonder how much it is that he actually is involved in sort of the creation of mm -hmm. the trials. So um, you get the first trial, which is, okay, you can sort of see it can be generic for anyone that, you know, you have to get by this demon monster that can sort of reattach himself if you sever him, uh, which is an interesting talent because I don't imagine too many people could actually sever him. So it's like, what else, what right. other ways that he, you know, other people might try to defeat him can he sort of um, right. do? But, you know, there's sort of a strength aspect, but also sort of like a, a wit, you know, yeah right there's like a, a a test of your cleverness and ingenuity along with it too sorry you have a sort of a scratch in my throat here um you okay do you want to get a drink or something are you okay <clears throat> not sure what happened it just sort of kind of came up on me <clears throat> um so yeah, yeah, you get this idea that he's um that there's sort of an, an intelligence or, you know, uh 
whatever aspect. Right, there's like a problem-solving aspect to it, um, you know. But, you know, we also get from Jeeves that nobody has ever made it past this first stage. So right. the second and third stage very much seem to be tailored. Though. Yes, like, yes, definitely. I, I, obviously, you know, a room full of crosses and holy water isn't going to be a problem for anyone other than a vampire. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> you also get the sense that, like, there's someone creating this second test mm -hmm. um, and also the third test, which is, you know, a bunch of stakes come shooting out the wall at you. Well, right. again, okay, you know, a lot of people are going to sort of be hurt by stakes. So that could sort of be more generic maybe than the crosses and holy water, but it's particularly, uh, you know, yes, yeah, uh, dangerous to vampires. So, you know, again, there's an idea that somebody's sort of choosing what these trials are and designing them uh, apparently on the fly. Um, and so how much of a hand does he have in that too? Uh, you know, is the sort of jumping, uh, well, one, he sort of seems to be able to sort of manipulate reality. You know, he can sort of transport and, uh, you know, bring Angel and Darla to different places and that kind of thing. So like, is yeah. he, is there like another aspect of him off sort of designing these trials and making them happen, you know, according to Angel's personality and whatever? Um, yeah, well, and there's the comparison to Gus again of, is he the malevolence behind this or is there somebody else or the intelligence behind this? Or is he a kind of automated, excuse me, system that somebody else has sort of set up, which is just sort of administering these trials. Um, right. Right. And so, uh, you know, the other, the other aspect is, um, you know, he does say that, like, and, you know, I think for the most part, we can believe him when when uh, Jeeves says that he's actually growing to like Angel a bit and sort of starts to root for him even um, at the end. Uh, although Angel doesn't seem to be buying it. Uh, right, right. <clears throat> uh, and, yeah, like, again, like, is it is it just because, like, nobody's ever gotten that far so he's kind of just curious to see how it all turns out or whatever uh, but even even when you know he ultimately can't do anything because darla's already been given a second chance mm -hmm. at life uh like he seems genuinely sorry yeah. uh that he can't do anything um so yeah i don't know uh like, I don't know that the individual trials themselves, other than sort of being interesting, you know, okay, you know, again, the first one sort of is intelligence. I guess the second one's sort of like stamina, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, like his ability to sort of put mind over matter, uh, you know, to walk across the right. crosses, you know, barefoot across the crosses and uh, reach into the holy water to mm -hmm. grasp the key and that kind of thing. Um, and then the third one is sort of like, uh, a testament to his, you know, willingness to actually give up his life for Darla. Um, you know, so, okay, so like you said, like the three trials themselves are kind of 
in the fairy tale tradition and sort of have different aspects of his character or whatever. But then he doesn't get like, but then we get the inversion, right? Cause usually mm-hmm. it's like, okay, you get, you get what you want or, you know, yeah. even if it's sort of like a fairy tale where like, you know, you, maybe you get like the sort of legal wording of what you asked for, but you know, it's maybe not exactly what you wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's that aspect too. This is like, okay, you win, and we're going to give Darla what you came to give her, you know, what you came to fight for. Oh, actually, no, we're not, because we can't. Like, it's not even, like, there's not even, like, a technicality, so to speak, to it. I guess it's kind of a technicality, but it's not, like, your usual, like, oh, we're giving you your prize, and your prize actually is something different, but sort of holds up under legal scrutiny. Right, Um, right. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, that's, that's very fairy tale too, for there to be sort of rules, you know, now the rules might seem arbitrary, but whatever the rules are, they're sort of, you you can't go against right. them. There are these, this very strict sort of internal logic, whatever it is. Right. Um, it's not like you can run a stop sign and hope that there's not a cop watching. Right. No. There's, there's always a cop watching. There's, exactly. Yeah. So... You know, I think that is a nice, you know, because it's not even that, and it's not even an inversion of like, oh, we promised a reward, but, you know, psych, we're not going to give it to you. It's like, we can't give it to you because you already have it, you know, and maybe not in the way that she wants. She'd rather be healthy and not dying, but there's this kind of, you know, you can only have the, the, you you catastrophic second life so many times, you know? And if you think about it, she's had quite a few, like she was already dying of syphilis when she got turned into a vampire, you know? And then she was brought back to life after being staked. And now she wants more life. It's like, you know, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it is, you know, sad for her that she's dying, but when you kind of think of it that way, it's like, okay, well, how many chances are you going to get, you know? Yeah. Which is and there's always of... this angel keeps saying she never had a chance. And you're like, actually, she's had way more chances than most people. Um, most people who just get one life and that's it. Um, not to say that things have always been easier, that she hasn't had unfair, you know, uh, aspects of her life. But, you know... There's a kind of terrible fairness to the fact of like, we literally can't give you a second chance because you've already got one. And now you have to do something with it. If you're, if you're going to do something with it, now is your opportunity. Yeah. And that's even sort of, uh, you know, Cordy's point is like, you know, she's, she's already... Uh, I think it was Cordy, right? Would like that she's already basically saying like, you've you've had all your chances. You've, yeah. You you know maybe it's time you just did something with deal it. deal yeah. with it. And, well, and the host says the same thing of like, she's lived a lot longer than most of us. Why are you so desperate yeah. to give her more life? You know because most people get you know whatever their seventy years if they're lucky. She's had four hundred. You know so. At what point do you say she 
isn't taking advantage of the chances she's being given. Yeah. You know? And and actually, I mean, so Jeeves says a similar thing right before um, you know, when Angel sort of chained up and before the third test starts, you know, he's asking him, you know, things like, isn't the world a better place with you in it? You can save so many people. She can barely save herself. And this is before Jeeves knows that this is even her second life. Right. Um, you know, she can barely save herself. You know better than anyone. Uh, the world can be a bad place. Yeah. You know, by swapping her for you is that, like how much good is that really doing and how long will it be before she ultimately falls? Mm -hmm. And Angel, you know, is like, well, I don't really care. Yeah. Kill me. Kill me if it saves her. And so you get a lot of people, I guess, really now that I think about it, saying sort of the same thing. Um, But he does it anyway. And, and yeah, it's an interesting thing for Angel because on the one hand, you could see that as kind of naive that he keeps thinking, well, she never had a chance and everyone's saying like, she's actually had way more chances than everybody else, you know? So he's kind of not, you know, maybe acknowledging that she's had chances. She just blows them. Um, But on the other hand, I feel like there's a part of him that knows that. And like you said, just doesn't care. Like, He's not in it. He's not doing this because of what he expects to get out of it. Like, so you think about, um, there's that uh, book by C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves, which is taken from the kind of fact that there are different words for love in Greek. And he sort of goes through what they all mean. And, you know, there's friendship and, you know, romantic love and everything. But, um Like, I feel like in this, this is Angel's, like, agape moment of, like, charity, of it's not about, there's nothing lovable about Darla. There's nothing worth saving in the sense of she hasn't earned it and she probably won't do anything with it. But that's not why you, you know, show her love. You do it just because, you know. And you're going to do it no matter whether it has a good outcome or not. Um, Mm. You know, so I feel like in that sense, even though maybe you could say that's kind of naive, I think there's a part of it that Angel maybe knows he could probably do more good in the world than she will do. But that's not the point. Like he's not doing this because of all the great things she's going to do. He's doing it because it's right. And that's sort of, he feels compelled to sort of give her another shot for whatever reason. So. Sure. And so I guess the sort of question maybe we can leave with there. I mean, not that we have to end the discussion here if there's more to talk about, but Mm -hmm. for Angel and Darla then is, does that, you know, he says that, that he wasn't capable of loving Darla when he was a vampire, when he was Angelus. So based on sort of your description, it seems like that's different that he does love her, not mm-hmm. in a romantic way, maybe, but uh, you know, like you said in this, in sort of like the charity way of mm-hmm. whatever. So, so that's a change perhaps mm-hmm. seem, seems like it. Um, 
the other question is then, is this different than the sorts of charity that he just does from a sort of week to week basis for right, anyone right. who he helps? And right, because if his motto is like we help the helpless, that should be their right. Agape is really their their whole mission, you know, is helping people just for the sake of it. Um, so so yeah, so like just something to think of. Right, um, and that's a good question. Would he go to these lengths for anybody? Um, maybe not. And so maybe there's more <laughs> personal feeling than, you know, uh, seems sort of apparent on the surface. Yeah. Well, because, okay, so then I want to talk about the ending because I totally glossed over this in the first one, but second time I watched it, I kind of realized he starts toying with the notion of turning her for a minute, you know, like mm. he kind of says like, you know, cause she's finally reached this place of acceptance of no, it's fine. You know, she is finally maybe sort of understanding, you know, what love is and that he's willing to do these things for her and she appreciates it. And she's even saying like, you know, don't worry about it. It's better this way. And just as she's doing that, he's saying, well, you know, I have a soul. And so if I bit you, who's to say what would happen really? And like, you can kind of almost see him edging towards proposing, like, what if we were to think about this, you know? So after his sort of very firm, like, absolutely no, under no circumstances would I ever do this. Yeah. He's maybe not, he's backing away from that a little bit, um, which is a bit of a shift <laughs> and a slightly dangerous shift. Like we, we don't want to get, or, in, or not so slightly. Well, we don't want to get into the place of we are now biting people for their own good, you know, <laughs> like, right. Right. like, because that could become a very slippery slope, you know, of sure. Who else wants immortality? You know, line up. There's Angelus to sort of give you everything you ever wanted. So, um, you know. Yep. And in that in that way, I hadn't thought about this until just now, but in that way, the bad guys breaking in and sort of force turning Darla is a little bit of like a you catastrophe for and for Angel. Like it stops him from going there. You know, like sure. it takes that decision that he was starting to flirt with out of his hands and, you know, takes that option off the table. Um, so if there's one good aspect, I think that's maybe it. But otherwise, it's this huge sort of frustration, you know, because, of course, just as Darla is starting to sort of maybe become a bit more human and accepting of her mortality Ah, here comes, you know, chivalrous hero Lindsay with his vampire in tow who's ready to sort of save her, so. Yeah. <laughs> and let's talk about that vampire in tow. Yeah. Drew. So, Drew. Drusilla. Yeah. Whoa, whoa Nellie Drew, whoa. as you uh, <laughs> so I, put it. That was, those were my exact words. Um, yeah, so she just sort of waltzes in and, you know, goes yeah. to town, you know, no, no words, no, 
no dialogue whatsoever. She just, she's here with a mission and she follows through. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to. So to, obviously you were not expecting that. No, definitely not. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to ask questions without being like without leading. leading. So I guess I, I won't do that, but you know, I, I guess I would just ask, what are your thoughts at this point about where you think things might be going uh, as far as that's concerned? I mean... Because we haven't... Correct me if I'm wrong, but we've not seen uh, Drew and Darla together except in flashbacks. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because <laughs> Darla was gone by the time Drew showed up. Right, right. So, um... Yeah, so I'll be interested to see what sort of power dynamics they might have or, you know, um, yeah, because it's weird because Darla was sort of, you know, her sire, but now she's sort of Darla's sire. So there's this weird, like, circular relationship now. Um, and Which I'm interested to see, isn't... like isn't necessarily weirder than if Angel were to resire Darla. No, no. But I think it, it complicates the relationship a little bit. Um, like, it can't just be a, a leader and led kind of thing. Like, you know, sure. the, the, the power has sort of shifted a bit. Um, and I guess I'm most interested to see does any of Darla's insight that she started to sort of gain as a human linger in the vampire mm. form? That's kind of the, the biggest question for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. And I actually wanted to talk about that too, because what are your, what are your thoughts there? Because I, well, yeah. What are your thoughts there before I tell you what my thoughts are? <sighs> What are my thoughts? Um, do you do you think that she was? Do you think that she actually had a change of heart? That she, uh, you know, was sort of coming to terms with her humanity and ultimately death. You know, I, impending death. I think in the moment, yeah. I don't know that that would have lasted forever you know i could see a situation where she as death got closer she became more desperate again or you know had a kind of relapse i guess but i i felt like the way it was presented <clears throat> with her sort of watching angel go through the trials and 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 seeming to have genuine sort of empathy for him and to feel upset when he you know, looked like he was going to get killed. I didn't take that as like, you know, calculated in any way. Like I took that as she genuinely felt something and, um, you know, and so, I mean, maybe acceptance, I mean, you could read it in maybe more 
defeated kind of way than acceptance, you know, of, of he did everything to get her another life and they can't give her one. So what are you going to do? You know, like I could see it just being a, well, I have to accept it because there's no other way kind of thing. Um, so yeah. I don't know how deep it goes, I guess is what I'm saying. But I do think at least on some level, it was like she was genuinely starting to sort of change or at least open her mind up to other ways of thinking. Um, so I don't know what to expect. I mean, I think I maybe, if I had to kind of, if I was a betting person, I think I'd kind of expect her to sort of embrace the kind of soulless vampire thing, but maybe that to not <clears throat> go quite, you know, maybe there are, maybe she's been through enough that that doesn't, that can only go so far. And, you know, maybe having seen what Angel would sort of do on her behalf complicates, you know, her ability to sort of be a soulless vampire. As a new vampire. As a new vampire. Yeah. 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 So I if I'm if I'm guessing, I'm guessing that we initially get a kind of, you know, it's Darla the vampire back with no sort of qualms, but maybe those sort of second thoughts will sort of creep in there eventually. But I don't know. That's optimistic. Maybe vampires are really soulless and evil and she will enjoy her uh, reign of terror for as long as she lasts. So I don't know. Well, and and we do know, like it's been hinted and not so hinted at uh, the fact that vampires do have at least some aspects of the personality uh, yeah. of the person that, you know, they were before. So um, there's not like a huge historical, uh, you know, yeah. corpus from which to draw on, you know, a vampire, you know, a person becoming a vampire, coming back as a human and being turned into a vampire again. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a good question of did her humanity this time around, did she change enough in these few months? And even just in the experiences of this episode uh, to change Mm -hmm. the personality of the vampire that she will now become. So yeah, that's a good question. We'll see. We will. Okay. All right. So on that note, uh, we'll be back with uh, another episode of Buffy next week and some more Doctor Who, apparently by the same writer. Yeah. All right. See you then.